Hi there, it's Kanika. This is an episode from the That's Total Mom Sense archives, which date back to 2019. If you're new here, there's a chance you haven't heard this one yet. And if you've been tuning in since the beginning, you'll surely be able to gather new ideas this time around. I know I have. I hope you enjoy it. On to the show. Hi, I'm Kanika, and you're listening to That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast, where I interview public figures on their life lessons in parenting, legacy, and built-in sixth sense. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland, and you're checking out That's Total Mom Sense. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton, and my experience on That's Total Mom Sense was fantastic. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Thank you to my guests, brand partners, community, and you for making this show possible. Episodes release every Thursday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can join my tribe by logging on to thatstotalmomsense.com and by following me on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Kanika Chadda Gupta. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Lisa Rani Ray, welcome, welcome to That's Total Mom Sense. Thank you. I am so excited for this interview. It's an honor. After reading Close to the Bone, you know, you've uncovered yourself in such a beautiful way that I can't wait for all of my listeners to read the book. And I want to actually start with one of the quotes that you mentioned on the pages. Padma Patra Evan Bhasa, live your life like the lotus flower. And how have you done so? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a powerful way to start. And thank yes. you for having me, Kanika. I mean, it's really great to connect with, uh, you know, a dynamic mom or working mom, you know, who sort of understands, I guess, all of the pitfalls and the, you know, and triumphs as well of uh, doing what we do every day. Yes. And we're exhausted and then we get up and we do it again. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, Padma Patram Evam Bhasa is um, a shlok from water. That's where I first heard it. And it really, really resonated with me in that moment. I guess it entered me on some level and it's been living inside me. And it's gained an even deeper resonance as, as you know, as I keep moving on my personal path. But basically, living like the lotus flower implies sort of floating on the murky water of the world, you might say, and to manage to still bloom, to be untouched by it, and yet to be in close contact with it. You know, that's a very powerful teaching, of course. it's It's been used in lots of spiritual traditions. But I love the imagery of the lotus flowers. It, it really brings it home for me. And I love lotuses anyways. And in fact, I got, I got it tattooed on my ankle just to remind myself as well. I'm sure there's, there's moments where I falter, where I fail, and then I pick myself up again. But I think just keeping that imagery is really powerful for me. But at the same time, of course, life is messy. I'm at a place in my life where, you know, I don't like to be in denial of that, where I think it's really, really, really important to sort of, you know, serve it up real and also embrace the shadows, uh, the failures and the failings as much because, it, you know, that's part of life. For me, my lotus flower is kind of um, 
it's not all pure and 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 white and everything like that. Mm. It's it's got tats on it. It's <laughs> a little bit shredded. It's a little bit, you know, because that's who we are in life. And there's beauty yes. in that. There's there's deep beauty to be found in that. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. So you know, as we read the pages and I've seen your works, I know that you are a free spirit, and it really began from your childhood. So could you tell us a little bit about it? Well, yeah, Close to the Bone was an exercise in exhuming my own personal history as well. I've heard other authors and writers say that, especially memoirists who say that, you know, I learned so much about myself in the process of writing. Yeah. And it didn't happen suddenly and overnight, but it was very clear and important to me that I needed to include uh, a chapter about my family, about my mother, my father, who I would term the original rebels, you know, it's really their spirit that is infused in me. When you're younger, you know, you tend to feel that nobody understands me. Yeah. I'm the first of this tribe. I'm the original rebel. And of course, that's all hormones and foolishness. So I realized in researching my own family and finally pinning down my very gracious father, my Bengali father, and confronting him and telling and asking him to tell me a lot more of his personal history. I realized that my mother and my father were incredibly brave and courageous for that time. Yes. Um, my mother is Polish and my father is Bengali. And my father was studying, as you did, engineering in those days <laughs> in UK. He was the first of his family to leave the country. And he comes from a established Bengali Brahmin background, although he didn't recognize casteism and all of that. So when he was studying abroad, he joined his university um, student group of young Bengalis who were on a cultural exchange. And they used to travel in the summer to the Eastern Bloc countries like you know, Poland and, and the USSR in those days. And sing Rabindranath Sangeet, you know? Oh, amazing. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I'm sure they were viewed as very exotic. But of course, you know, Calcutta in those days was communist. And there was yeah. a kind of armchair communism that was practiced. You know, this idealism about socialism. So anyways, my father was on tour in the summer. And on their last night in Warsaw and Warsaw in Poland, at the university bar, he saw this, what he terms, and it was very, very touching for me to hear him say this, this angel, obviously turned out to be my mother. And I have no clue how they communicated because my mother couldn't speak English and he needless to say couldn't speak Polish, but he bought her a drink and an attraction was lit and then he left. Wow. And then they continued their correspondence uh, over airmail. And the one thing that had always intrigued me over these years was how did how did mom communicate with you, dad? I understood that your English was, you know, baka and perfect. Yeah. How did mom write to you in English? This is, we're talking about, this was behind the Iron Curtain in those days, right? In, yeah. in Poland, right? You couldn't easily travel, a very dogmatic form of communism in those days. So anyways, it turned out that in my mom's little village, there was an Irish woman who had married a Polish man. And she helped my mother translate and wrote those love letters between my parents. And I just was so touched by this. And I never would have known if yes. I had confronted my father and written close to the boat. But right. <laughs> my parents obviously chose to get married at a time when interracial marriages were not 
regarded well and were few and far between. Yeah. And the courage it took for them, for my father to, in essence, break with his family tradition. It was frowned upon, of course, because a suitable bride had already been chosen for him. And my mother to leave all that she knew behind for an uncertain world and move to England where she couldn't even speak English demanded a huge amount of balls and courage. Absolutely. And even after that, they took very unconventional decisions. You know, they they created this very intimate little family of two. They traveled. They chose to travel for a long time before emigrating to Canada, again, spontaneously selling everything that they owned to a new country. And they waited a long time to have me because they wanted to enjoy their lives. And you have to put into context, this is like the 60s, the 60s, the early 70s, you know, none of this choices were conventional, were widely held to be responsible. Kind of what society expects. Yeah. Society expected at that time. So Mm -hmm. I realized that all of this restlessness, this butterflying in me, this nomadic kind of tendencies, this tendency to question convention and push back against the status quo, that's not me. That's the spirit of Barbara and Salil, you know. Right. I think I wrote with authenticity and frankness, but also a a great deal of tenderness. And I've had a lot of people say that they really enjoyed the chapter and reading about my family background. Yes, same. I I really did. I feel like just watching their love story unfold, it was just beautiful. It was beautiful to read. So what are some of the traits you feel you've adopted from your father and from your mom? Mm. Well, my father was always a dreamer. I call him the poet engineer. <laughs> yes. What his family expected of him, he became a chemical engineer and right. successful in that field. And in fact, he was a researcher and a doctorate and all of that good stuff. But his real passion was for cinema and for, of course, words and music. It's yeah. Definitely in the Bengali. In the Bengali, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. So he he expressed it by joining his, again, his university's group of cinema lovers. But Mm. his brand of cinema, of course, was never traditional mainstream cinema. And that is something that I imbibed from him. You know, I grew up watching Satyajit Ray and Kurosawa, Fellini, you know, all the great auteurs. And sure, there were some cartoons mixed in. There was Tom (laughs) and Harry, but I actually never saw a traditional mainstream film until I was in my teens. So it was a very, it was an odd, precocious kind of um, induction, I guess, into, into the world of cinema. And so that's what I really valued in terms of cinema. And then again, you know, my father and I, we were dreamers. We would, we would debate, we would have these little addas for two, you know, adda is like this very Bengali tradition of sitting and philosophizing, (laughs) all the world problems, solving them and then going to bed and then starting the next day. And, um, I still have that tendency. I still enjoy my adda. So my father and I would do that. My mother's nature was very diametrically opposite. Although today as a mother, I see that 
I am my mother's, my mother's daughter. So my mother was always in motion. She could never be still. So she was always cleaning or canning or cooking or, <laughs> you know, washing, or she was the one who would walk around the house. If there was a faucet that was leaking, she would, she'd be the one with whatever that tool is called. Because yeah, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a ratchet or something. Yes. <laughs> Wrench, God knows. Yes. Oh, sorry, mom. <laughs> I'm not quite a self But she was so handy. Yes. So handy. She was so strong and dynamic and very social. I I must also add that my father and I are introverted personalities. Mm. And despite all appearances, I am an introvert. I guess I define introversion as when you need to withdraw from social contact. I mean, introverts can appear to have extroverted qualities and they can be even the life of the party, but we get drained. Right. need to crawl into our nest and feathers over us and and just sit for a while extroverted personalities i in my definition need social interaction and they derive their energy from that yeah so my father and i would be sort of watching observing my mother who'd be the life of the party and would gather people around us and would fill our home with people we'd be watching slightly bewildered sitting from the corner <laughs> of the house <laughs> no we were both a little bit socially awkward and my mother was responsible for all that she was our um you know social managers so my mother had this very attractive personality but what i realized that i've got from her is my drive now again balancing motherhood work travel you know all these sorts of what appears to be competing demands on me not that i put extremely high standards but i get it done and it's thanks to my mom and now right. that i look at it my work ethic all these years is really thanks to my mom but that's a double edged sword that you know we can go into later on because i think that being a workaholic has definitely has its drawbacks as well yes yes you know, one other kind of touching chapter was when you spoke about how your mom had endured a very tragic accident. Mm-hmm. And it was at a time when you had just developed your wings to fly. Mm-hmm. And I cried reading that. Oh, my John. <laughs> oh, my sweetheart. I'm so sorry. Make me cry. No, you're going to make me cry, actually. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Emotional. I always get emotional about my mom. You know, I feel like it's sort of a reflection on grief and loss. You know, I I think I wrote, or maybe, I I mean, maybe I think it that I kind of lost my mom twice. Yeah. One was through the accident and then finally through her actual death. But of course, I didn't lose her through the accident because of her incredible will. She willed herself to stay around for my father and I. And I realized I learned the value of presence through her because even though she was physically confined to a wheelchair, it tore me to shreds from the inside. I mean, I, I you know, it's one of the yeah. deepest traumas of my life that I'm not sure I'll ever completely recover from. Right. Carry it with me for, you know, for all my days. But her presence, she still managed to, even though she had lost the ability to do a lot of what she loved in life, even though she lived in pain her presence was the glue of our family. And even knowing that she was there, even though the accident is what set me on the trajectory of a very different life from probably what I would have had, had it not happened. Right. Set me on the trajectory of running away, of moving to India, of even falling into the career that I'm identified so strongly with today. I mean, I don't know if that would have happened if the accident hadn't happened, to be honest. And, you know, that grief is so strong. 
like every time I still remember when I when I wrote the chapter on her passing I mean we all experience that in life and you know my grief is no bigger or greater or you know in that sense different from anyone else's but I've accepted that that grief is sort of stitched into my heart and I carry yes. it and so I, you know, I'm, I don't try to deny it or push it away and I get teary and God bless mm -hmm. you. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know because our mothers are our mothers. Yes. Yeah. We, we just, you draw it back to becoming a mother yourself and then you the think of yours. Exactly. Yes. It's the most fundamental relationship. So that will always be with me. But what a woman. I actually called my mother very fondly, my Punjabi mother. She loved India more than yes. her. Yes. And there there's there's something there though that the Eastern European sensibility, the very practical, straightforward work ethic. Mm. I mean, they're much more, I would say, culturally speaking, this is broad strokes. Right. More practical than Bengalis. Yes. <laughs> you know what yes, I mean? yes, yeah. So my mom was so Punjabi about everything. And she, all, of her, all of her friends when I was growing up in Canada were Punjabi. You know, she used to make homemade barfi, you know, she used to get those recipes. So there's that aspect of her as well that I think I've also imbibed. Yes, yes. Oh, it's just, it's such a gift to have a mom like her. So let's get into when you were discovered. So you kind of packed your bags, moved to India. You were there vacationing actually with your mom. Tell us about that moment. Again, serendipity. I've actually started one of the chapters talking about a word called serendipity. It's one of my fondest words because Same. You know, it's about, right? It's yes. about finding good fortune when you least expect it, you know, yes. all etymology to it that I've written about. That's also very interesting. But anyways, uh, yeah, my career was completely serendipitous. I was a young girl full of wonder, curiosity, adventure, but I was being chaperoned by my parents. We were in Bombay because I had made a deal with them. I'd negotiated a year's break if I graduated from high school a year early so this was sort of my official gap year break so instead of going and building homes in Ecuador or something like that <laughs> for, for humanity I ended up in Bombay yeah. and um it was Bombay at that time and for me it's always right. it's always Bombay for me too. Yes. <laughs> you know what they say right Bombay I mean Mumbai is a place Bombay is a state of mind Ooh, I love that I haven't heard it uh I, yeah. I can I can never call it Mumbai it feels so forced yeah it's odd but, um, and have a story about that and remind me to circle back. Yes. It, so there I was in Bombay and we had this sort of crazy series of experiences and we ended up staying in the Hare Krishna in the ISKCON guest house in Juhu because so many plans fell through because that's what happens in India. Completely by coincidence, drawn into the social world. I mean, Bombay is very social and it's all about the next young thing. And somebody spotted me at, at the swimming pool in the Holiday Inn, which was the place in those days. We're talking yeah. about 1990, 1991. And at a party, somebody told me, oh, you know, Maureen would love you. She loves your type. And I said, who's Maureen and what's my type? And he was referring to Maureen Wadia, who's married to, of course, the um, Nasli Wadia, which is a huge industrial family, a very old and established industrial family in India that owns a number of concerns. One amongst them is a company called Bombay Dying. And yes. Bombay Dying was really renowned in those days. They sell mass sell 
towels and bed sheets and kind of essentials like that. But they were renowned for their very glamorous at that time ad campaigns. Yes. Of beautiful women and models wrapped in towels. And it was considered very risque in India in those days. Mm-hmm. And Maureen was in charge of that. And Maureen was also starting her own fashion magazine because remember, 1990, there was no Vogue India, there was no Elle India, there was right. there was Femina and it was like, like Stardust, or, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, yeah, Stardust, which is yeah, but that's it. That's the gossip magazine, yeah, yeah, exactly. Not a fashion glossy, not a fashion magazine. So, anyways, what this man mm. was referring to by my type was mixed breed you know, girl of mixed heritage. And that was because Maureen herself was Anglo-Indian. And it's funny, you know, I reflect on it because even today, I think that that people of mixed ethnic backgrounds, we don't have a strong lobby. Mm. <laughs> I am so happy to, you know, see and support the BLM movement I'm, the representation is growing in, you know, in the States for South Asians. I'm so happy to see that for, you know, today, this is uh, Asian month, I think. Right, or, right. Uh, yeah. Asian American Pacific Asian Islander. Islander. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All of that is fantastic. But what about people like me? Yeah. <laughs> between the cracks. Yes. Say. You know, once in a while, I get asked to audition for stuff out here. Like I said, acting isn't my primary focus. I don't even identify that way. But, you know, if it's an interesting project, I say, great, I'll do it. So uh, very recently auditioned for something that was interesting to me, got great feedback. Okay, uh, sent us a second tape, sent out the second tape in the middle of handling my babies and oh stuff. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I can beg someone, only imagine. <laughs> beg, someone to, beg someone to play with them. Yeah, another- take them outside. I have to record. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sent that in. The feedback was great. We love the tape, but because it was a diversity kind of casting, we love the tape, but she doesn't look ethnic enough. Interesting. And I have gotten this in this part of the world all the time. Wow. What's happening is that when there's this idea that it's a diversity hire, it still is considered, well, we have to check a box. So whichever actor we hire has to look very obviously ethnic. Oh my goodness. I know there's something very wrong in this. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Because again, they haven't tweaked the system. They haven't gotten it right. Mm. It still feels like a, like a little, a token. It's still token. Mm-hmm. It's still a bit of a pat on the back. Anyways. Right. So I think I have to eventually now when I find time begin like a really strong lobby and yes, for yes, for yes, <laughs> for the mixies, for, for, for yeah, for the mixies, exactly, in, in many different exactly. ways. And I've read a lot of very interesting essays by people, you know, of of similar backgrounds as mine, you know, and and that struggle. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because identity and my identity struggle has really informed my life, yeah. and that's also been a very very strong theme throughout, close to the bone. And whatever resolution I've gotten to now, of course, is is a function of my spiritual searching, my age, where you just kind of feel more comfortable about yourself. But yes. that doesn't mean that the problems have been solved. That doesn't mean that that they've gotten it right, that society still has, you know, the status quo is still very, they're very enamored of putting people in boxes. Yeah. So now, either yeah. you're ethnic or you're non-ethnic. Right. right. <laughs> you have to look very distinctly Indian and and also the definition of what it means to look like as an Indian is very different in America, right? There's yes. A particular picture of that. Right, I mean, right. I, there's many, many 
there's many Indians who look like me who are actually of you know full-blooded Indians yeah and who are in fact even lighter skinned than me it's right like, I uh ended up going to meet Maureen Wadia it's a rather an amusing story I'm not going to get into yes, it. yes yeah it's they read it in the book it's, it's so book. funny and so she asked me if I wanted to model for her <clears throat> I never thought of modeling it was so out of the realm of my possibility nobody in my family it was still considered a little bit dodgy in those days mm-hmm. but at the same time my family was, you know, my mother and my father were open-minded. They were open to right. experiences. So go and try it. You know, it's fine. Go and check yeah. it out. Plus, I was yeah. very stubborn. So it was more curiosity than anything that drove me there. And I went and something happened in the studio. I really actually enjoyed it because I was so introverted. And again, so conflicted about my identity. Where do I belong? You know, when I'm in India, I don't completely belong. When I'm in Canada, I don't completely belong. Who am I and what am I? And how does this yeah. all together and when I was in front of the camera it never mattered of course the makeup that was put on me was weaponized and it was really really thick in those days and I've written about that in detail (laughs) but um something happened so anyways I didn't even think about it I ended up having a lovely time modeling for this women and then we returned back to Canada I was supposed to begin university and then the accident happened and my entire life was turned inside out and upside down and you know every other concern was dissolved and my life became a matter of driving back and forth to the ICU because my mom ended up being paralyzed Mm -hmm. and it was a really really difficult blurry time except that when my father and I would come home and drop in bed exhausted in the middle of the night around two, three in the morning, the phone would ring. And you know what they say when someone you love is in ICU and the phone rings in the middle of the night, you know, you, you fear it yes. could be bad news. Yes. So jump up and I would have to run downstairs because it was a yeah. phone connected to the wall. <laughs> right. and, um, I would pick up the phone and I would hear India in the background, you know, just those distinctive noises. And it would be someone trying to offer me a Bollywood film. And it was so bizarre and surreal. Simultaneously, on the other side of the planet, my photos were released on the cover of a magazine. I became an overnight sensation. Oh, yes. yes. And how does that happen in life? How do you explain that? There's no logical explanation to that, except for, mm. you know. And the other thing that you have to remember about that age is how would you know if you were famous on the other side of the planet in those days before the internet? Before the internet, I know. Oh my God, amazing. It makes me think of this um, saying, Bhagavan ek letai, ek letai. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly that. It just, you can't have it all at once. It's so sad that, that that's the reality. So I want to kind of skip ahead to your very illustrious acting career to one of my favorite films with you is, is water. And yes. And I actually got to see you and meet you briefly at the premiere at the Angelica in New York. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, And I remember it vividly. It was, yes, it was such a beautiful film. So tell us about that experience with shooting and and the younger, the the girl who had to learn all her lines phonetically, um, the Singalese girl. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. And working with Deepa. But again, I wanted to add that I think it's important 
to emphasize one thing about my career, particularly that decade I spent making memories in Bombay. Because I landed in this career, because I didn't aspire to be part of this career, first of all, I always felt like a fraud. And that's, you know, the imposter syndrome that a lot of women, unfortunately, experience, particularly younger women. You know, I enjoyed the opportunities, but yeah, I didn't feel I deserved it. And it was because I didn't know who I was. I didn't value myself. I was also struggling with my identity. I was also struggling with being pigeonholed by the industry in Bombay, you know. Um, I like to say that, you know, my career was a double-edged sword, right? On one side, of course, was fame and fortune and reputation and opportunity. On the other side was, aside from deep personal tragedy, was also, you know, in a sense, my my sense of self, yeah. my identity, which was still not fully set. You know, I mean, I was so young. I was in my late teens. It was still kind of amorphous. And maybe it sounds like a worthwhile sacrifice, but believe me, it's it's not. So at a young age, when you're still trying to figure out who you are, your voice, and I always wanted to be a writer. Let me emphasize that right now. The one thing I always wanted to do was write. It was my biggest dream. Or be a journalist or something like that. You know? Yes, yes, wow. With, with words and stories and things like that. Right. And, you know, if I do say so myself, I was always sort of sensitive and smart and had a passion for art and a lot of other things. But because of my start in India those days and because of, you know, the way the industry works and because it was even more patriarchal in those days, I was immediately slotted. I was like this glamorous, fluffy girl. And people also thought that I was much older than I was. Right. You know, that was hard for me. That was really hard. So I was always trying to act out those feelings by like when I wasn't working, I would be a slob, was trying to beg for respect from the world. Mm. I've read, you know, when I was working on Close to the Bone for the Indian edition, we had an inlay of like visuals and, you know, stuff like that. So I was going through old interviews of mine. I just feel so sad for that girl who's sort of like trying to beg for respect. And I did. I curated art exhibits. I was, you know, writing little articles. Nobody ever wanted to talk about that. You know, that was a huge learning curve to understand that you don't you don't beg anyone for your value. You value yourself. You love yourself first. But that was that would take me a long, long time. So I just want to say that, you know, fame is a double-edged sword, as I think a lot of us now know, and that what you see, the glossy exterior, is uh, doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on internally, the internal right. at all. So oh I thought well, that was really interesting. And that was, you know, the 90s were crazy. And of course, I've written about it. And I know a lot of people have enjoyed hearing about that aspect. But really, Close to the Bone is about my inner search. And I call it a travelogue of the soul, because it's it's also not just about me. I've tried to also mesh in cultural moments and, and travels and things that I've seen and done. But getting back to water, water arrived in my lap when I had left India and I was in drama school in London. And I just literally wanted to be a theater actor or a mime or something like that and write poetry on the side. (laughs) I was done. I was done. And what's interesting about my life is every time I've said that, which refers back to, you know, something that we said at the beginning of the interview, Are you done with acting? Because every time I've said, I'm done, something happens. Right. Um, (laughs) I should say, I'm done more often. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, opportunities will come falling into your lap. (laughs) But I was in drama school and I really enjoyed drama school because it was very therapeutic for me. Mm. In understanding how to dissect characters, I understood more about myself and about human nature. 
So I really was starting, starting on the path of healing a lot of my trauma. Mm. Uh, so that's actually what drama school related, you know, um, what, what it meant to me, even though I also had a lot of fun and it was wild and wacky and, and stuff like that. But while I was in drama school, um, Deepa contacted me out of the blue and sent me across the script and said, do you want to be a part of it? And the script was called River Moon. And I said, okay. But, you know, Deepa, to her credit, saw something in me. And she's one of my greatest mentors. And she always says, she says, I saw who you were. And I saw that you would absolutely your vulnerability, your openness, which I didn't display to a lot of people. Like I was actually quite closed in those days. But she saw that. She said that suited the character and also your dedication to your craft. I mean, you had uprooted yourself from your glamorous life and you were living as a student in London. So that spoke to her. And uh, so I was on board. I said, yes, it was one of the greatest professional experiences of my life. It was certainly about the journey, but this is one of those unusual moments because filmmaking is such a tumultuous craft. You never know what you're going to get. You know, you can have a perfect director, perfect actors, and it can still not quite click. But in water, the journey, I was so focused on the journey and I got so much fulfillment and enrichment and satisfaction from the journey from whether it was preparing for my role of Kalyani, like actually going and spending time in Vidva ashrams, spending time with Neelam Mansingh in, in Chandigarh, a renowned uh, theater director to get the body language right, mm-hmm. you know, acting, walking around in a plain white sari for, yeah. you know, barefoot in Colombo in Sri Lanka. But, you know, everything fell into place. Like there was another young girl cast and she, it you know it just it fell through and then yes yes so they did a big um casting call in in sri lanka and uh, they came up with this gorgeous little girl chuya who now you can't imagine any other actor in that role and she was really a non-actor she was a young girl yeah she couldn't speak English. She couldn't speak Hindi. She could only speak Sinhalese. So right. she learned everything. It was just magnificent. All of my co-actors, Seema Biswas, Manor Ma, who played um, the matriarch of the Vidva Ashram, everybody, everything just, it's one of the greatest memories. It's, it's still a living memory in me. In that sense, the film is alive in me, not as the product of the film, but as the experiences. Right, and right. That's what happened. Suddenly, everybody, you know, there was no ego. We weren't thinking about what's in this for me at all. And mm. I, I really do think, I mean, you know, yeah, it sounds very idealistic, but I think that that's why it also is such a magical cinematic experience. Absolutely. And it was so groundbreaking. And I feel like, you know, as a viewer, it left a lasting impression. So let's talk about more of your recent works. I feel like you always surprise, you know, and you're always pushing the envelope and helping to destigmatize stereotypes in society. And you've done that in your breadth of work. But I want to touch on um, Four Shots, Please, because I feel like that mm-hmm. is... Um, new media and you know it's a whole new ball game it's it's a whole new ball game and you know what's so cool kanika i mean it's very cool because look i'm an old lady now yeah <laughs> sometimes you know you get these trolled middle-aged actress middle-aged oh. so and i'm like yeah i am i am a middle-aged actress absolutely <laughs> nothing to hide there but what's really cool of course is that all the content that i would have loved to be a part of in the 90s is now being finally is blossoming and blooming in india 
the yeah. new voices. These, oh man, these kids today, they're so bloody talented and they're so prepared. That's a pleasure. Of course, because I've worked on the West, I am familiar with that. Mm. But, you know, I've also worked in India yes. in the 90s and that was a very different game. So I love that. So it's a really a thrill for me to at least be a small part of this, to experience, you know, little helpings of what's going on, because I love the content. I watch it obsessively. That's all I watch. I prefer watching that than a lot of the other content that's coming out. You know, I, you know, it's a long list of stuff. Made in Heaven. Um, yes. Deli Time, who's that, which is actually made by a friend of mine. Which, anyways, the, the, the list is long and long and long and long. And the actors are, you know, fabulous these days. And this is exactly what... I had hoped for, but uh, yes, yes, because so it's got I, this indie vibe, but it's just, it's basically pulling back the, the layers and exposing an underbelly to different aspects of society, of relationships, all of it, you know, we, we needed this. Also, finally, they've understood how powerful medium it is and yeah. they both entertain and enlighten people. Right. Because that was right. a line in Bollywood. No, 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 no. We must only entertain. Yeah. So, and of course, it's streaming platforms that have really opened up uh, the floodgate for all of this. So it's really a thrill. Like, I didn't anticipate it, to be honest, to be a part of this at all. And as usual, serendipity again, my best friend. Yeah. You know, I was just doing my thing. Of course, I do work in India. I do a lot of um, advocacy work. I do a lot of public talks. I do a lot of other things in India. But, you know, for me, again, being a, you know, a, a mother, but also having worked for so long and been doing something that, like I said, I'm not necessarily nature-wise suited to. And that I never mm. I'm at that stage where I say no way more often than yes. Yes. Actually, that when I was young as well, but yeah, but now it's more purpose driven. Yeah, look, you spend a lot of time on a set, it can be very, very boring, or right. spend time with people that are uplift you in some way, not our talks. Yes, yes. So, anyways, long story short, Rangita Nandi, who I've known for years, who's an amazing woman, called me out of the blue and said, I want you to be a part of this and uh, sent me the script and it was very out there right even for yes and I got very excited and then I got just slightly scared because you know it really is about execution right but I I love Rangita we've been talking about projects over the years and nothing ever materialized and I and and then she told me there's going to be basically a, a completely female-centric production as in female director female DOP female writers wow female female producers female stars amazing men are kind of peripheral to this yeah <laughs> even more excited and then we kind of went back and forth back and forth I said screw it yeah yeah <laughs> let's do it you know oh my gosh wow and, uh, and I'm so glad uh you know that I committed to it and I'm so thankful to Rangita to everybody also to Amazon Prime India for backing this project it was the first it was, it's really been a pathbreaker and they gave us enough space and enough of the leash to be able to really experiment and have fun. And yet at the same time, obviously it's entertaining. I think that's also why it's, it's done so well. Absolutely. It's, it's an entertaining, it's an entertaining package that at the same time really hits on really relevant subjects. And why not, why not blend it all together? Exactly. Exactly. And we're for it. We're here for it. Binging. All of the content. So I want to touch on 99 songs, A.R. Rahman's latest project. So 
what compelled you to, you know, feature in that, you know, which is just driven by music? You know, way back in the 90s, I did an ad for something called Garden Saris. And believe it or not, people in India still remember that ad. I mean, we're talking about what, like, going to be almost 30 years ago. Wow. And part of it was the visuals. Part of it, of course, was that there wasn't a lot of content. Some people just... Yeah. <laughs> Hang <laughs> on. Yes. That really had... They were almost entertainment, right? They right. Right. Imprinted in people's psyche. So part of it was the visuals, but part of it was the music, you know, like the little jingle, which was composed by A.R. Rahman. Hmm. So AR and AR did some of the music for water. And so when AR called me and said, you know, I'm doing this and would you like to be a part of it? I said, yeah, anything. <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> no, oh, I, I love that. So much respect for him. He's an incredible man uh, working on 99 songs, even though it's a cameo. I went down to his institute, which is called, I think it's KC Institute in Chennai. Mm-hmm. He's much and people don't even know about it. He's established an entire musical institute for musicians and singers. Wow. And I went and I trained there a little bit in jazz just so I could, you know, understand the vibe. It, it was a, it was a, just a beautiful experience. So I'm really full of gratitude and I'm blessed and serendipity keeps sending me beautiful experiences that round out my life. Because of course, I want to emphasize one thing here. My life is not all about my work. I don't define myself through my work. Yes. It is about experiences. And that's what I've tried to convey through Close to the Bone. You know, life is about coloring outside of the lines. And most of my life has been about coloring outside the lines, whether it's been my spiritual search, um, my travels, my seeking, my experiences. And that is who I am. Tell us about those moments. I think that's something that's really inspiring because you clawed your way out. I think it's important, obviously, to talk a little bit about my cancer journey, because that's even what triggered Close to the Bone. Right. That's a lot of the work that I'm involved in today, particularly in India. I mean, I I give talks all over North America as well, but particularly in India where we need a lot more cancer advocacy, you know, than out here. So, yeah, getting diagnosed with this very serious disease turned out to be, you know, a revelation. I don't want to say a gift because nobody wants that kind of a gift. Mm-hmm. I had sort of abused my body, abused, you know, I wasn't taking uh, the time for myself. I was still running away from myself, even though I was practicing meditation. You know, it's a gradual unfolding, a gradual peeling of the layers. It's like I understood the changes I needed to make in my life. And somehow I just wasn't able to implement them. And there's nothing like a diagnosis of a serious cancer to make you stop and reflect and change. That's what being diagnosed with multiple myeloma did. Multiple myeloma is a relatively rare blood cancer. It's a malignancy of the plasma of the bone marrow. And normally people are diagnosed in their 60s. And I was diagnosed at 37. So it's a very, very, very unusual diagnosis. Yeah. And of course, I've written about that in depth and close to the bone, close to the end of the book, because it's not a cancer memoir. I think think we can emphasize that. But that was a real turning point in my life. And I think that whatever it was, a combination of things, some people perhaps are saying, well, does meditation and yoga, does it actually do anything? Sure. You know, there's a calming effect in your everyday life. But let me tell you, when you are in a pickle, when you're in hot water, a consistent practice provides you with the inner resources that you didn't even know are there. It gave me that resilience perspective to be able to deal with it. That's not to say that I did not have really dark moments. And I think what ends up happening with, again, a steady 
practice. And, I, you know, it doesn't have to be, we don't have to call it a spiritual practice, a centering practice, a practice that helps you connect with something that is bigger than you, something that is other than you, that helps you to humble yourself and center yourself, is you start realizing that your heart is connected with everything, that you are part of something bigger than yourself. And you can draw on those resources. Of course, I did a few things when I was diagnosed with cancer is that is what triggered me to start sharing my writing. I ended up writing a blog called The Yellow Diaries yeah. because I was confused about what I was going through and it simply helped me to order my thoughts. That led me to understanding the power of community. I think I am one of the first so-called Indian personalities or celebrities, however you want to put it, that actually went public with a cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It was taboo in those days. Nobody did. No celebrity did. And I was encouraged not to. And you did it at a film festival, no less. I announced, yeah, <laughs> announced my diagnosis at the Toronto International Film Festival. When right. 40 pounds overweight on steroids, etc. And it was one of the most seminal, uh, liberating moments of my life. I'm so glad that I did because I wasn't only thinking like, I'm going to help others by doing this. I was receiving the incredible support and the energy that I needed to, to get through it. So that was really seminal and an incredible transformational experience. And it taught me about the power of community because I was, a, I was actually had a lot of emotional walls before that. I was quite secretive. You know, being secretive sometimes is associated with shame. And in sharing, my God, the amount of not just support, but the amount of stories that people shared with me, there was a beautiful community. And yeah. I really feel that those prayers are what helped me get through it as well. As, of course, going through the treatment, as, of course, also being my own advocate, advocating for multiple myeloma gave me a purpose. And coming out of cancer, I've never been more purpose-driven before in my life. It was like everything that I was looking for suddenly came together. We have to be who we are. We have to express or acknowledge our emotions, you know, right. Um, it's going to be great. Of course, you know, a negativity mindset is very destructive. We can agree on that. But a purely positivity mindset is also kind of erasing all of the nuances of what it means to be alive. So cancer was huge. I've written about it again in detail in Close to the Bone. And I'll continue to write about it and advocate and, and talk about it. And, you know, I end Close to the Bone with, you know, a spoiler alert with my wedding. But of course, I relapsed very soon after that. So I do think that there is still a little bit more of the story that I want to share. Because I know it's helpful. I still get messages every single day. And I know how many people helped me when I was going through it. So cancer, I shouldn't be here today, to be honest. So I have a great debt to a lot of people, to science, as much as to faith, to my spiritual practice and to an incredible circle of people who have supported me through this. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not out of the woods, technically, you know, I'm on lifelong medication, et cetera. But I certainly, I don't wake up thinking that I've got this disease. Sometimes I forget about it. Right, right. And you're living in a way, back to that graph, where there's, you've struck a balance, you know, your I'm, mental and physical and spiritual health is so aligned. Yes, absolutely in alignment. And here's the weird thing is that after cancer, you know, a lot of people think, I mean, I was, to be honest, never big on, on marriage or the formality. The convention of it. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, having cancer obviously clarifies a lot of things. Mm. And I had to take out my old belief systems and dust them off and say, is this relevant anymore for me? And I really recommend doing that because sometimes the things that we hold so dear are no longer relevant. That's all. Right. So, after cancer, get this, I met and married my husband, had two babies, moved again, 
through, you know, multiple countries, wrote my book, finally had the guts to step into what I feel is what I'm meant to do, my calling as a writer. I have this great career that's still somehow improbably going on. And at the same time, my personal life is really the best that it's ever been. But, you know, it's also about creating the life that you want, having the guts to defy all of the voices in your head, outside of your head, but in your head and say, right. here's here's the kind of life that I want. I think it's within anyone's grasp. And I understand, you know, people are going to say, no, it's easy for you to say that it's okay. Uh, put that aside. Anyone can do it. The first thing is to understand what do you want and to have the guts to ask for it. You You never saw yourself as a mom. Right. Early on, you you said, if it happens, cool. If it, if it doesn't happen, how did it happen for you? And, you know, did you and your husband decide we're doing this? We want a family. Yeah. Yeah. It took us, it took us a while. My husband, Jason is amazing. He always wanted to be a father. It took me longer to get there, but I got the clarity. And when I was sure we went for it, and of course we had to look at surrogacy options because I'm in premature menopause. I can't carry a baby because of, because of also the uh, treatment, the medication that I'm on. Again, never too late to be who you might've been, right? Yes. So surrogacy, we're, you know, I owe again, a great debt to technology, to these advancements and, and fertility options. The actual surrogacy would, didn't just fall into place. You had to be persistent. I'm I'm stubborn as hell. So that's actually a good quality. I think that's even what helped me recover from cancer, you know. Okay. Sometimes good quality, sometimes bad quality. Ask my husband. You know, we had a lot of false starts and we really were had our hearts set on having our surrogacy in India. And we went through everything, did all the paperwork, established everything, and we were living in Asia at that time. We also looked at adoption options, but um, we thought that it actually took a lot longer for us. We were in Hong Kong at that time. And so, you know, the waiting period in India, because I'm an OCI, and even though I was sort of partially living in India, again, it took a very long time. And, you know, once we decided we're in our mid 40s and we said, okay, we're going <laughs> to, you know, our energy levels <laughs> compromise year by year. So we said, let's let's try for surrogacy. So believe it or not, a week before we were supposed to begin, India declared surrogacy illegal, except under very particular circumstances. And, you know, there's always a way in India. And I had people approach me and say, Nayar, we can do this. We yeah, Jagad. <laughs> it didn't sit right. So we did engage a company a really great company out of Canada. But I ended up doing the research because we had, again, a few false starts. And I ended up researching and I found the Republic of Georgia. Ukraine mm. and Georgia, which is used to be part of the USSR, are two countries in the world where international surrogacy has been legal. It's very black and white. It's not a gray area. They have a relatively well-developed uh, medical system. And, you know, they have a history of doing this come on, let's check this out. So yeah. the managing director of the fertility company that we were working with actually flew to Georgia and researched it and said, thank you so much. First of all, what a beautiful country, stunning. And second of all, you know, what a great opportunity for, for couples who are looking for this solution. I ended up for four months in Tbilisi, Georgia, where our girls were born and it was a blessing and Georgia is now forever stitched into my heart as well. Again, another incredible adventure because Tbilisi is quite the city. It's the kind of city that I enjoy. It's got incredible history. It's still a place of the world that is still relatively unexplored. 
fabulous wine culture, really great food. It's still not overdeveloped. There really isn't Starbucks there. And I loved it. In fact, what happened is our, our children were born and then my husband had to leave me alone because he had to go back to work in Hong Kong. Mm. And so I had my uh, nanny from Hong Kong mm-hmm. and it was just me and her and two little ones. I managed through through my Indian network make some friends who were from India who actually lived there. And Vishaka is, you know, one of my great support systems and a dear friend today, you know, and she just had her own little baby recently. So incredible. I I mean, I had a a, a magnificent experience and uh, I definitely feel that I need to write about it soon. Yes. That's what we're looking forward to is part two. But now that's, that's out of the gate. The actual process of mothering has been actually difficult for me because I didn't have a lot of experience with young children. Mm-hmm. I don't define myself as naturally nurturing and it's exhausting. It's bloody exhausting. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of patience and, you know, I'm used to being super independent and in charge of my time. So needless to say, it was a huge shock to my system, but we managed. And, you know, here's the thing. We had to grow into each other, me and my kids, right? You love yeah. unconditionally. There's no, I mean, no question of that. Yes. But getting to like each other, getting to know each other, introducing yourself to each other, that's that's a different journey entirely. Exactly. You know, for the first few years, I was actually traveling a lot. Like I shot four more shots when season two, when my kids were tiny, they came to the set. You know, we were back in Bombay for a while. They used to come to the sets and on my lap and stuff like that. But I was traveling like anything because when I'm on, I'm on. Yeah. But these kids, you know, I got the best advice from a dear friend of mine, Leonie when my kids were born and she's also became a mother relatively later in life. She said two things. Number one, you're going to get a lot of advice. You are the mother. Trust your gut. Yes. And because, you know, I had these piles of these books and one was contradicting the other. And I, I, you know, one was telling me that I should make out the schedule and I was like, ah, <laughs> it's oh, mind numbing. Yeah. That was one thing. Trust your gut. Of course, reach out and ask for advice and support. But all of this unsolicited advice that you get is not helpful always, right? Right. Number two, she said, your children, they don't need a perfect mom. They need a happy mom. Mm. So, you know, this whole thing of mom guilt, should I work, shouldn't I? You know, I it doesn't come across as much to me because I live by that. Right. I know two girls and I'm so lucky to have incredible girls. Incredible. I mean, they already have such strong, independent spirits. They're full of wonder. They're so charming and and fearless and, you know, blah, 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 blah. I could go Mm -hmm. on. And by the way, their names are Soleil and Sufi. Sufi and Soleil. Sufi after the mystic tradition. Islamic Soleil means sun in French. And in combination, they make a souffle. Oh, that's so cute. (laughs) Which are delicious. (laughs) So I live by that. They don't need a perfect mom. They need a happy mom. Yes. Myself. You remember I was talking about my mom and these sort of perfectionistic tendencies to keep a perfect house and all of that. And I used to be a little bit anal about everything in its place in my house. And I was very house proud and we collect art and blah, blah, blah. And that mm-hmm. all that goes out the window with kids. And now I've had to, like I said, I'm going to go mad. It's okay if there's toys strewn everywhere for a little right. while. It's fine. I've had to like really chill out on that. Yeah. Girls have... open doors within me that I didn't know existed. And at the same time, I take space for myself. My husband is is the most incredible husband I've decided because he can see when I'm super stressed out, he says, go, go check yourself into a hotel for two nights, 
and I'll hold down the fort. And he's a fag with his father. He loves being a father. But to be honest, it was going from Asia to Canada helped us be fully hands-on mothers and fathers. And we needed right. Because in Asia, we always had full-time help. That's simply how it is there. How, yeah, that's the fabric of the culture, absolutely. Again, in a weird way, COVID for us has, I mean, of course, it's been terrible, terrible. Mm-hmm. So heartbreaking. But we've been, you know, we all have our backs against the wall in different ways. And this kind of fulsome time with my kids, this kind of bonding never would have happened. And they're at that age where it's really crucial. Right. You know, COVID kicked all of our asses. And at the same time, the aftershock of that is something that I'm grateful for, of having this full-on focused time with my kids. With my Yes, kids. absolutely. Um, so is there um, a mom sense moment that you can recount for us? I think our mom sense moment was even leaving Singapore for Canada. Mm. You know, we, we had a great life in Singapore, even though we landed in the middle of the pandemic or at, at the beginning of the pandemic. I think my mom sense, and it was, was strangely, it was me that triggered it. I said, you know what? The world is going through a lot of upheaval right now. Asia is my home. I love Asia. You know, that's really yeah. where I feel most connected, where most of my friends are, et cetera. And yet I looked at my two little girls who were stuck in, inside our apartments. You know, I mean, Singapore handled the pandemic very, very well. But it was still a huge blow to our lifestyle and what I wanted for them. So I said to my husband, I think it's time to go back to Canada to go home for a little while. And it was my sense was doing it for them. If it was just me and my husband. no. Yeah, you could have stayed on. Yeah. I said, you know what? They they deserve something else. They're, They're in a stage of their life where, you know, I wanted them more connected with nature. Singapore's, again, beautiful. Lots of nature. But it was such a weird time. Right. And we've always had, I, you know, I bought this little house out in Western BC 10 years ago. Well, in Nelson, I've written about it in Close to the Bone. And um, it was always a little haven for me initially. I thought I would move here and write and be a hermit like I've always (laughs) But again, serendipity pulled me away. So we've always had this and cherished this house. And I've come for like short vacations and stuff like that. I said, so because we have, you know, a home in Toronto as well. I said, we are not going to another city. We are going to the mountains. Mm. Mom sense. And my girls have thrived here because of course there have been restrictions, but the fact is, you know, we walk out of the house and there's incredible mountain views. Yes. You have the great outdoors. Oh my goodness. Lilacs are blooming right now outside of our window. They have gotten to see such a variety of wildflowers, you know, that they they probably won't see you know it's 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 a different flora and fauna out here but you know when the tulips came out then the buttercups the, the dandelions you know oh. they they pick flowers every day you know we go for long gorgeous this was this was a total mom sense moment yes yes absolutely let's not forget our quote of the day tell us the quote that you live by this is by george Eliot. It's never too late to be what you might have been. I love that. Yes. I I should get a tattoo. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Both at my age to get a tattoo, but still. It's now time for Mom Hall, when we share products we love. You know, I always end with like a fun shopping segment, Mom Hall. Is there 
any product that you're absolutely loving <laughs> right now that you can share with the, with the audience? Two things. There's this vegan line of beauty products called Fine. I also love Pahari Local, which is available in India. A lot of really sustainable products, sustainable luxury that's been brought from the mountains. Mm -hmm. I'm really into Lunia these days because I'm always looking for great work from home outfit. <laughs> right. So two products that I love, Sidia, S-I-D-I-A, which is a really cool little line out of Toronto. Got mm -hmm. a great story, fabulous, really comfortable, but they look really chic. And then Lunia is my other big find right now. Yeah. So cool. And so cozy. My mom haul for this week is uh, Luvania. It's um, a brand I was recently introduced to because I spoken to the founder, Dr. Alpa Patel. She is a pediatrician now has a, her own skincare line because she also suffered many different health issues herself, had yeah. to take a pause and, and launched uh, Luvania. And it's 100% vegan, cruelty-free. I absolutely love the hydrator product and the exfoliating serum. Check it out, Luvania. So lastly, where can my listeners find you? Close to the bone, all of it. Well, yeah, I hope that we've whetted some more readers' appetites for Close to the Bone. Um, I'm really, first of all, I want to express so much gratitude. The, the The book has been so warmly received, both critically and widely. In India, it's been a bestseller. Uh, we released in North America in November, it being the middle of the pandemic. Of course, I couldn't do many promotions, but I'm really happy that it's finding readers because it's that kind of book, you know, it's yeah. not it's not a celebrity memoir. Let me just say that whatever you feel a celebrity memoir might be, it's not that. So uh, Close to the Bone is widely available. It's, um, uh, it's published by Doubleday in North America. You can find it on Amazon. You can ask your local bookstore as well. And if they don't have it, ask them to stock it. <laughs> my local bookstore in my little town in Nelson has been amazing. They had multiple copies. And then I was able to do little signings there. And then they would send it out to readers. And that was really wonderful. Please support your local bookstores. I mean, reading is magic. Reading is everything. Reading is healing during this time. And, you know, that's something really nourishing that we can do for ourselves at relatively inexpensive, you know, and a way to travel when we can't travel. Widely available. I would love to hear your feedback. And you can find me on social media, across all social media. My handle is at Lisa Rani Ray. Wonderful. Lisa, this was such a treat. I'm so glad that we got to delve into all things about your life. Yes, and we made it happen. <laughs> yes, before before you depart. And I just I want to just tell you the impact that you've had on me and, and your story. Um, like I said, I wept as I read the the pages and I felt that it was so profound. You you truly have a gift. And it makes sense that you wanted to be a writer in the beginning because the way that you convey your story, the language you use, the way you can take us back to a time or a place and have just the scenes feel so vivid and, and visceral is incredible. So you're extremely talented. And I want everyone to read Close to the Bone. I'll be doing a giveaway on social soon. So yeah, so keep a lookout for that. And Lisa, just such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. And thank you for all that you do as well. It's really cool. And I know how hard it is. And, you know, you probably don't even let on how, how challenging mm -hmm. it is. 
I love your passion and keep doing what you're doing. Let's keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lisa Ronnie Ray is truly a Ronnie, a queen. Didn't you find it so refreshing to hear her story in her voice? Her words are so profound. And after reading her memoir, you'll see that she was always destined to be an author. Albeit she's an extremely talented actor and striking model to boot, but the written word is a talent that comes across so innate to Lisa. And Lisa, it was a joy to have this conversation with you and have you share your light with the world in this way and, and through this medium. Lisa and I will be hosting a giveaway of her book, Close to the Bone, on social media. So do follow us at Kanika Chanda Gupta and at Lisa Ray on Instagram for details. Now I want to share a review on Apple Podcasts, and this was by Miss Con, K-O-N, and subject she writes, just love it. Kanika is such a professional. You know she's done the work, and I love that she addresses all kinds of issues. Well, Miss Khan, thank you so much for that review. Email me at thatsotalmomsense at gmail.com, and you will receive your very own merch or a consultation with me on the art of the interview valued at $250. Remember, Always trust your mom's sense. Stay strong, super mamas. See you next time. That's total mom sense.